Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. My name is Michael Johnston. And this is another episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I have Lentina Hermel, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Idaho, to talk to me about Trailer Park America, Reimagining Working Class Communities in the 21st Century, published by Rutgers University Press, 2023. Welcome to the show today, Lentina. Thank you. Excellent. Um, so I guess to begin our interview, uh, can we talk a bit about how you came to write and conduct the research for Trailer Park, Trailer Park America? Yeah, um, the book starts with um, a water crisis that hit Syringa Mobile Home Park in uh, December of 2013. And um, about four years before that happened, I was teaching a sociology 101 course, Introduction to Sociology, and two of the students in this uh, class of 120, um, two of them were actually residents of Syringa Mobile Home Park. And that had come up during our discussions about um, economic inequality. And um, so I had been introduced to them in that way. And Syringa itself um, is a mobile home community or was a mobile home community located just three miles outside of town. And a lot of people like me run and bike past this spot all the time. It's in just this beautiful idyllic setting with a full view of what, of Moscow Mountain. So um, having had those students in my class, uh, and this water crisis happening four years later, I was following it quite closely uh, because I knew a couple of people that lived there and I really cared about what might be happening to them as well as the other folks living out there as well. And um, so for about a year, um, the people in the park had a class action lawsuit. The University of Idaho Legal Aid Clinic was representing them. Um, legally, there was another case that had been uh, uh, introduced from the Idaho Department of Environmental Quality, or Idaho DEQ, as we call it here locally. Um, they had also filed a lawsuit. Um, both of these lawsuits were against the park owner, whose name was Magar E. Magar. And um, so the news, local news kept following this. He himself, the owner, Magar, he um, really uh, tantalized the journalist because he was the caricature of the evil uh, absentee landlord who just let things get really decrepit and weren't faced with lawsuits, was very resistant to cooperating with the courts. And he himself had been an attorney um, at one time in Oregon, uh, but was disbarred by the state of Oregon. And so uh, he had all of this uh, experience of making things miserable for people who tried to file claims against him vis-a-vis the courts. So I was following all of that news and thought, okay, well, at least the courts are seeing that he is the problem and ev- most everything that had been decided by the courts was found in favor of the complainants. And there was this sense that justice was going to be served. Well, by March of 2015, over a year later, um, the news was coming out in the local papers that not only was uh, the park owner seeming to be delaying and perhaps figuring out ways to not even pay the residents for the problems of that they had experienced in the park, but that um, 
he was even threatening to close this park, which would have meant at that time at least 65 households needing to find someplace else to live. So um, that's when I really got concerned and decided in my social justice instinct to contact the two former students. And I reached out to them and asked them how I might help. And Don Tatchell, who writes the foreword to this book, um, basically told me, well, I need you to be witness to what happens to us and to help advocate for us and be a voice. So that's basically how I got involved in a nutshell. <laughs> and then it led to this book. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that leads me to the next question. Who who lived in this park? Who lives in this park? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I start this book um, with, I tried really hard to, what took a long time <laughs> Um, is both that this was a very emotional um, journey that I had to heal from before writing um, because it was very, very tragic what everybody went through while these lawsuits and while the park owner dragged everything out for years, not just for a year, but for years. And so, and their conditions never improved during this time. People moved out steadily, so their community became um, a ghost town of sorts. Um, so mentally, it was very difficult to write this and also to um, just try to contextualize why did this happen to this particular community and why, as a sociologist, um, I understood from research that this isn't surprising, unfortunately, that this should happen. And um, so this community has been, it is essentially a reflection of the national trends over the last 50 years of not investing in the working class. And not investing in working class is the housing. So mobile home communities, um, as in this region of the world or of the country that is, <laughs> um, you know, we had a whole bunch of mobile home communities developed in the 60s. The 60s were the heyday. And I think this is the case for many places throughout the country that a lot of development took place that exploded. The federal government was subsidizing loans and providing grants for people to who had land to be able to develop a working class utopia of sorts where people could buy a structure and have it rent some land while they were able to save some money and eventually move their home somewhere else where they owned the land underneath their feet. But um, once that investment was made, uh, we became a country that started disinvesting in such programs through neoliberal policies that we often look to Ronald Reagan as the beginning mark of, of these policies. And so um, there was this rapid disinvestment in parks. A lot of them were neglected, so they were built. But then um, a park like Syringa, because it was in the county, um, relied on well systems and a sewage system, a sewage lagoon, more specifically, that the landowner actually owned and controlled. So instead of relying on municipal water that's updated or uh, municipal sewage lines that would be maintained and monitored, um, the owner owned all of that. Basically has a fiefdom of sorts, right? Of, um, so um, the kinds of people that were living out there were the kinds of people over time that were working class, but who were in what we might call the precariat now, right? But folks who were landing the jobs that were paying the least. And um, and that's, so they're working class or they might've been retirees um, who had been working class living out in this park. And, and early in the book, I introduced an idea that is not, intended to replace any other kinds of ideas about communities, but 
I, I essentially called Syringa and communities like Syringa where people are on the losing end of the feminization of labor. You know, not only the fact that it's, you know, that women might be dominating certain types of low paying jobs, but that overall men and women have experienced um, declining wages and declining work conditions, right? So, so that's the feminization of labor. And I thought, well, if the feminization of labor is, is increasingly experienced across genders, then certainly if communities like Syringa become the last place that they can afford to live because of this process, then to me, it makes sense to call these feminized communities, communities that become a place of refuge where people who share the status of not having the best jobs and the best work conditions and are therefore stuck with lesser housing because that's what they can afford because of that process. So um, the kinds of people who live there, largely working class, and the bulk of them disproportionately people with disabilities. And that's, to me, what I found really quite stunning as I was figuring that out. So does that reflect the uh, more general population of Moscow, Idaho, which is where this uh, research was conducted? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, at, at one time I thought, oh, I'll, I'll make the, I'll use the metaphor, the tale of two cities, right, uh, <laughs> or a tale of two communities. Well, you know, in rural places throughout the United States, and especially on the west side of the United States, mobile home communities are the equivalent, excuse me, <laughs> are the equivalent of, um, of, you know, ghettoized spaces, marginalized uh, and segregated areas where the poor and people of color live. And um, so that's what Syringa is. In contrast, Moscow has uh, been booming. You know, we've seen a steady version of gentrification taking place. It's a campus town with the main employer being the University of Idaho, and Gritman Health Center. And now we also have an engineering um, uh, center that is also um, bringing in high level professionals for work. So it's a very affluent kind of community that prides itself in being safe and friendly to everyone. And, um, but definitely is marginalizing more and more of the people who do the services for all of these spaces. And what seems to vary um, extremely is the experience that is had for the people who reside in the park um, as compared to those who resided in the larger city. Is that accurate? Yeah, and and um, some of the disabilities that people um, shared with me were physical, a lot of the men had physical um, disabilities, but there are many people with severe um, mental disabilities. And so for instance, Dawn, who writes the foreword, she, you know, shares that she has CPTSD. And many people had some version of PTSD, uh, bipolar um, disorder, and um, so, so those were also um, some ways in which Syringa actually was beneficial to them because it was in this space that is often set aside for the high-income families, right? And at this beautiful countryside where, you know, it wasn't uncommon for people to encounter deer and moose and geese flying overhead to land on this sewage lagoon. <laughs> and so uh, as psychological studies have shown, right, is that it's nature and interaction with nature in this open space that is very, very uh, therapeutic for people who have the anxieties that come with those kinds of mental um, illnesses. It was nice for them to be able to have the space because some of those uh, mental and physical uh, ailments were also 
um, compounded, I think you said, with the um, alcohol abuse or substance abuse or other labels that may have been attached uh, to these people, uh, preventing them other places to live within the city. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, and a lot of them uh, also uh, really need pets as their companions, and they like to have a few of them, and because and they're their family members, and so this was one of those places where they could own a structure and not be dependent on whether an apartment landlord was going to let them have any pets. And if they did, you know, not having to pay that extra fee that so many people have to pay. So, so it served a variety of very helpful functions just based on that location, even though, as I also mentioned towards the beginning of the book, um, so many people uh, have difficulty finding transportation to get to work, where one woman was known to walk to work every day, so three miles into town and then three miles back out. Um, and so, yeah, so it was both an inconvenience if you're working, but that location was really prized by a lot of folks. And living in an environment that wasn't uh, was a decline. So the quality of life that they were working every day for was something that was subpar, which I found that interesting, but it was still something that it was a prized possession. And you even talk a bit about the prized possession that they had, while it looks to some just being an object out in somebody's yard, to them it was theirs and it was it was it was a prized possession. Yeah, one man's trash is another man's treasure is this old saying, right? And especially, interestingly enough, um, one way to think of that, and, and this, I've used, I have done research in uh, Ukraine and Russia, and I saw some similar types of things in observing, especially gender and the different ways in which people are able to make ends meet through different types of informal activities. And so one way to think about what looks like messy, trashy types of yards is that some of those households, um, the men who are working through life with disabilities, such as Jim Ware, who had a terrible back and was only earning $700 a month because this was your typical rural man who had been working under the counter for years for one of the local timber companies, um, gets injured from doing that, you know, really serious manual labor, but does, didn't accrue much in the way of social security. And so um, his disability was only 700 a month. And what he had figured out was, you know, he was really good with engines for cars and with small appliances and that kind of thing. So he collected anything <laughs> and he would store it there. And he had a little workshop that had a wood stove inside it. Um, and he would build things and he would either swap things out with individuals or sell things. And sometimes he just out of the kindness of his heart, just simply did things because it helped him feel constructive and manly in the face of being someone who had a lot of, you know, challenges. He couldn't have had a full-time job. And, and so that was one way that, as you were hinting at, is that I'm conceptualizing this idea of feminized community is that in the face of economic hardship and declining living conditions out there, that nonetheless, People knew each other, whether they loved and hated one another each day, that was all flexible, but they always knew that they could look to one another for the kinds of things that low-income households don't have. They can't buy everything. So they were looking to ways that they could at least swap services and support, which includes, so for men, a lot of, there were several households where the men, um, were able to do uh, manual types of work, you know, so they were physically disabled, but, you know, physical disability does not mean that you can't work at all for a lot of people. It just means that you're not able to 
be on your feet for eight hours a day with only a couple of 10 minute breaks, et cetera. Right. Oh, I think of wheelchair basketball and other sports that men who are disabled are able to play and still maintain masculinity uh, through, well, alternative opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. And and in working society, the way that we, you know, I, I, I point out in the book, I've used it a few different times that in this system where we assume that people need to do to dedicate physically to an eight hour work day with only these prescribed short breaks um, is inflexible and, and, and it disables people's opportunities to, to be gainfully employed. And so what that's, what people end up doing is trying to figure out workarounds to avoid complete homelessness by doing these informal types of things. And so um, there were women at the other end of the park from where Jim Ware lived, who um, just donated their time they, uh, by offering schooling after children came home so that the parents and grant, you know, there is one fellow who was a grandparent looking after four or five grandchildren, and he needed them to be doing something and not being latchkey children. And so the women at the end of the park, Dawn and her mother called, who was nicknamed Cookie Grandma, <laughs> they they donated, donated their time to help with tutoring and also um, teaching the boys to treat girls nicely. And um, yeah, so that was another thing that was provided out there um, that you can't, you wouldn't be able to get in Moscow itself. Yeah, it's uh, what's interesting about this is it's almost like a, a an ethnic enclave or something where people come together to create a, a, an alternative community, but while trying to maintain some normal normal routine, even if it's uh, even if it would be considered deviant or different to other uh, other groups. Yeah, and it, and and I conceptualize this in as a direct contrast with what stigma mobile home communities and generally poor um, and you know poor households and households um, in marginalized spaces um, what you know they're stigmatized as though they're criminal um, as though they're all drug addicts and welfare queens and, and those sorts of things. And those, those types of stigmas um, enable uh, privileged community spaces like Moscow to um, kind of ignore uh, uh, crises, right? So a lot of people are want to do good in places like Moscow. On the other hand, if they if you can't come up with an immediate solution, um, you deal with that frustration by just kind of ignoring it politely. And that's that's a symptom of scorning down because you have nothing to lose if you ignore someone's you know request for help. And so I, I bring that out um, is that they were that the community really was had a, was more normal. <laughs> If you were to place these people in the middle of Moscow, they didn't, they really weren't behaving any differently than the average people and the average composition of, of the town itself. But yeah. Well, and it's just a, you know, it's a label that was given to the Syringa mobile home park. I think that a lot of communities have that, whether it's a mobile home park or it's a certain side of town, or if it's a, you know, even a certain certain number of blocks within a community, like, uh, um, in Los Angeles and Skid Row, right? I mean, every city has their stigmatized area of the community, uh, some ha holding a greater stigma than others. Um, and one of the things that I enjoy most about this book is how jam-packed it is with stories. You have wonderful stories of the uh, of the residents of this community. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. now I, yeah. So now I think what would be a, a, an excellent transition is to. Uh, move, the moving out of the people in these uh, in this community once the park closed down. 
Uh, you talk about the lost connections and people who stay, stayed the longest losing the most, both monetarily, but also um, losing out overall, being the last ones there. Yeah, it's that, that's uh, ironic. <laughs> and um, and it was, so the title of the chapter that talks the most about that process is the, uh, the chapter titled Syringa Refugees. And I came up with that title um, thanks to Frank Stone, who emailed me um, in May 2018, um, just a month or so before the park was supposed to be legally closed. June 5th, 2018 was the official date and the deadline for people to get out of the park. Um, the threat of it, that the uh, park owner was able to use was that once uh, June 5th passed, at any point that person, the landlord had the right to shut off the water and, you know, not let people use the sewage line and threats to turn off all the power, all of that, that it was going to be closed. So um, many people and the park is located, um, as I point out, I try to give an ecological history and an indigenous history of this space to explain that um, the particular location of this mobile home community would have been at one time a, a very marshy, seasonally moist wetland um, where those geese that were landing on the sewage lagoon, they would have just been landing on that whole space because it would have been a, this beautiful marsh with little baby deer bounding um, in between bushes and um, our native camas growing um, from the drying out areas. And so the site of this park was um, where indigenous women, Nimipu women, um, were last seen harvesting camas, in fact. So this space was meant to be wet, and especially in the winter and into the late spring. The June 5th uh, deadline basically left people, if they were going to move their homes, which several did end up moving their homes, even if they were pretty old, um, it left them at most three weeks where it wasn't so muddy in that area that the heavy equipment necessary for pulling the homes out, that they could pull them out without incident. So Frank Stone wrote me because he was one of those people who had a very nice home and he said um, that he had been trying for weeks and weeks to get one of the other mobile home um, park owners to let him move into a space in their parks. And he kept being turned away. And he said, you know, nobody told me that this would be an issue, that just by the fact that I'm from Syringa, that I would be turned away, even though I have money and I have this beautiful home. I guess you can call us Syringa refugees. And I thought, that is perfect. That's absolutely what's happening. And if we can anticipate, for instance, you know, the idea of climate refugees, in many respects, you know, this was for Moscow a first glimpse of what it might mean to, to see a huge number of our neighbors face some kind of community disaster and and become refugees in a blink of an eye, even though we saw this in slow motion for years. Um, but um, yeah, so the Syringa refugees came from Frank Stone's email and um, the idea of that. And they, and many people in town, um, when this, when we were first told that there was going to be this park closure, many people in town said, well, you know, they've had years to understand that this is probably going to close down. So why didn't the writing was on the wall? Why didn't they just get out already? So it's mainly blaming, victim blaming almost. Yes, yeah. It, and, it, you know, and sociologists get really frustrated hearing those kinds of things because <laughs> we talk all the time about not blaming the victim. But 
lo and behold, the things we talk about are relevant because that is a tendency in, in real life. And um, so I'd asked many of the community residents who were living in the park, such as Amy Pace, who had been one of the longtime residents who'd lived there for decades since childhood. I asked her, so what do you think of this question? You know, why didn't you move out already? Um, the writing was on the wall. And from her perspective, she said, well, first and foremost, you know, this is my community. I saw my children grow up here. I grew up here. My parents got married here, you know. And so when talking about housing crises, I think so much of the policymaker just uh discussion is just simply about the house, the structure, and that deficits in housing availability and housing affordability is uh, simply a matter that we just need to build more things. And um, what's lost in all of that discussion is that you can have these structures built, but if we don't think about how people can establish healthy relationships with one another, or maintain those healthy relationships, then we're not really solving the problem. And, well, uh, if we don't take into consideration positionality, right? So understanding the positions that they're in and the lives that they're living, I think the you know the basis of of sociological perspective, right? And uh, seeing the strange and the familiar in part is is seeing that these uh, residents of Syringa um, Mobile Home Park, it's familiar. It's their everyday life. To us, it seems strange. Yes, yes, no. but you know, that's um, you know, to have these shared experiences and not feel like you have to hide them because people around you are judging you. That's that's exactly what they enjoyed about it. Um, so you know, it took a long time to to find places for people, and this is where my work really shifted from what might have been sort of a traditional ethnography where you interview people and you follow them around. And I did a lot of that. But the last year and a half, I really started engaging more and trying to figure out like, well, it, if it's not, if this place is not going to close, what do the residents want to do? Can we form a resident-owned cooperative? Would we be able to talk this absentee landlord into selling this property to a cooperative. And so those were some of the questions that were coming up, but it seemed like it seemed impossible because we didn't have a cooperative development center established yet in Idaho, especially not Northern Idaho by the time uh, closure was announced. So we had these dreams and now they're becoming possible in Idaho now, but in 2018 and 2017, that was just a pipe dream. So my advocacy became uh, one in which I was trying to help facilitate um, communication between the residents who were stuck out in the park and the organizations that could try to cobble together some kind of resources to help them in some way to have money to move, et cetera. And so, um, so I did a lot of shadowing with caseworkers. I did a lot of knocking on doors to figure out the needs. So I present some demographic information that we were talking about earlier. That was all developed from doing a lot of different methodological techniques, survey work, shadowing workers, knocking on doors and, uh, <laughs> you know, over about eight months time. And it seemed to me that it turned out to be a, a win-lose experience for the uh, residents of this community. And, and the reason I say that a win-lose, it, it it pushed the, it pushed policy. It, I, I think it, it pushed the knob that way. And there was compensation that was had through the suit. Um, but the lose, the losing end uh, is that they lost their park and they lost their home and they lost their community. And, and then the other thing that contributed to an even, well, making an even greater loss, I think, is that by putting oneself in the news, it also makes one more vulnerable to outsiders, scavengers, as you called them in the book, coming into the park and trying to 
well, take advantage of some of the residents and then literally stealing from other residents. Yeah, it wasn't that apocalyptic. <laughs> it, uh, seeing it firsthand, I mean, that was part of why it took a long time for, and, and still people are scarred, you know, is this idea of people driving. There were literally people driving through just because they wanted to see what was happening. Ambulance chasers. That's what yes, it, and then yes. other forms, yeah. So there'd be these fancy cars with couples on a Sunday drive or something like that that just simply wanted to see firsthand what what terrible stuff was happening to these people, but not offering any help, not offering to help store things, move things. Uh, and, and, if, and if so, what can I get out of it? Yeah, you know, what kind yeah, of what kind of an income? So, Yes. And then that, of course, the most uh, chilling thing was people coming in and trying to make money off of people's situation. And and I'm sure anybody who's been to any uh, crisis situation, I think immediately of Hurricane Katrina, but we've had so many disasters since then and before then. But that's an aspect I hadn't even thought of is that there are always going to be people who want to take advantage of that vulnerability and make money and i saw exactly that going on and the residents were very upset so we had on the one hand poverty pornography tours mm -hmm. and on the other people coming in and offering way below market value um, money for things like rvs and fencing and deck work and all of that and houses themselves i mean there were definitely houses that were purchased after the fact that were then moved to some of those local parks that were denying people like frank stone a space to live now he finally did find a place that would let him move in but um it wasn't without feeling quite despaired um so yeah yeah, so the residents of Stringer Mobile Home Park seem to be able to come together collectively and win a battle over poor conditions of living. The park clothing, closing and the residents having to move out was a consequence of the residents coming together. What were some of the policies and social implications that came out of this larger collective action? Yeah, so the thing that, you know, and this gets back to the very first question, part of why I wrote this book was that this story had to be told because of the tragedy that even with people sticking their necks out, calling the local news, um, the local news station from Lewiston and having reporters come up and televise um, some of the issues and, and interviewing people or the newspapers taking photographs of residents and publicizing what was happening and issuing their names very publicly and also the residents uh, raising hell uh, in March, 2015 with the local county commissioners who basically condemned their buildings despite the fact that it wasn't their buildings that were the problem, but it was the, the contaminated water that was the problem, right? So they did, they did all of these things um, with the little bit of resources they had, They brought me into the storyline so that I could also advertise what was going on as a local scholar and activist, essentially. Um, but in the long run, yes, they still lost their community. And as you also hinted at in the book, I also say that the people that were stuck in the park because they were the people with the least amount of ability to move and who were the most emotionally attached to this space and um, who also too, like some of them, um, like Derek Lund, who I bring up, who was in a terrible condition where he um, was very drug dependent and um, would have episodes where he would be these old cars that were in his parking spot and um, was kind of a scary person if you didn't know him, but the people did know him and knew that he was a very good guy and relatively harmless, but was just hurting himself. And um, 
So all of these things that were going on, yeah, they collapse um, and they hardly got any money via the courts, not as much money as those who were able to put their lives together enough to get out of the park before it closed. So the you know, people, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. You say the people in the park knew this guy who was addicted, but and he looked like a really scary guy, but they knew who he was and they knew him. The difference between him and the scavengers coming into the place is it was it almost seemed more dangerous and maybe and it was scarier to them because these were strangers coming into the park who may be more straight laced but are unfamiliar to them and are unfamiliar to the park so truly are more dangerous than even the most addicted person maybe in the park. Yeah, well, they had no interest in the people. They had no relationships with them, right? It was just a user-friendly relationship. What's what can I get from you? Whereas everyone understood what Derek needed is that he had, had he was steadily losing his friendships, his neighbors that you know would just say, "Yeah, come, you know, sit down. What's up?" You know, and and he as he lost those friends as they moved out, the people that would listen to him who had known him since he was a wee little guy that had lived in that park, um, he started taking it out on the park property itself. And, um, and yeah, as a researcher, there came that tipping point myself where I felt um, that it wasn't, I didn't feel safe. Maybe I would have been, but I didn't feel safe because it had changed that dramatically by really end of May, middle of May, and into June and, and later. Many people were stuck in the in Syringa through July and August. Um, and Jim Ware, one of the very public figures, um, he stayed until early December. The sheriff's department um, issued final notice um, in middle of December and said, you yeah. know, so June 5th, it legally closed. Water was shut off about two weeks later. So people were using a porta potty and hand washing station that Avista Utilities brought out, um, thankfully. Um, but, you know, there were people that were stuck in that park. And Jim, honestly, I, I really think he was just so emotionally attached to his place. He had his shop there. There was a lot for him to lose. So what's happening to that space now? What's it? Yeah, what's happening now to it? What's happening now is um, that uh, it got bought by a farmer who lives adjacent to the property. Who and this farmer is also a person who who does development, housing development, and so he has been he decommissioned this the sewage lagoons. So those are empty and um, decommissioned completely. The soil's been removed and he basically used it as fertilizer on a couple of his fallow fields and isn't going to raise food on those fields for a few years. Um, I think it's, I think it's two or three years that it sits and then it's usable again. Um, so all of that's been solved and he hires people um, who may have criminal records and, um, you know, or had drug addiction um, histories. Um, and so he tries to give them a second shot at life or third shot at life, hires them and tests out what their skills are by um, having them steadily clear out that park. Um, so a lot of the houses are still there, the structures, but they're empty of their contents. And now he's just trying to figure out the best way to completely demolish the homes <laughs> and remove them. So, so that's that history. And in terms of what the residents themselves are getting out of this, is there justice at all? I, this book has been really helpful for them. We just had a book launch two days ago. Don and I both presented, and I've been giving this book to all of the residents that I have been following up with. I'm still in touch with many of them. And uh, 
the justice is that this story, what happened to them, the uh, landlords of other parks know that they're on notice. So they are, you know, people know too that in these parks to stand up for themselves and call Idaho Department of Environmental Quality when there's a water quality issue. They know to call the police um, and the county commissioners and the city council. So um, there are some lessons that a lot of people learned. It was sort of a handbook for people and it's become a legend now of like, don't let this happen to us. And so, so it, there is something that has been very effective in terms of social justice, but unfortunately it, it came at the expense of a community lost. But a silver lining, right? An opportunity that mm-hmm. lies there that that people know that they're not alone if they're living in a in a mobile home park and that their community extends well beyond the lines of their their park. Yes. I, I guess I, I can't close the same way that I normally do with uh, what are you doing next? Because I think that this is a really uh, social justice focused book and a really social justice focused conversation. So I guess instead of closing that way, I think a better way to close would be to to say, what should people do? Those who are listening, what what call to action would you would you make? What what sorts of things would you suggest people do um, who read this book and listen to this conversation? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not a bad thing to ask what I'm doing now because unfortunately, the way I end the book was the perfect segue to what has happened since. We have six mobile home communities in Leita County the same county where Syringa is located that has been purchased um, in the past year, in October 2022. Um, Investment firm from Washington State bought six parks above market value, offered this money to uh, the park owners, and um, they have now issued 20-page leases that have lots of illegal uh, requirements in it, and they upped the rents for people by 40 to 50 percent. So, for example, one of the parts where the lot rent was $325, um, those residents are now being told that they need to pay $500 for their lots. And again, same type of people. So what was very telling about my research in Syringa is that it was not unusual. This is what the local mobile home communities have been about. And I've done a needs-based survey. Um, I did one last spring. And yes, even more people in the current uh, parks that are facing these rent hikes and these uh, leases um, even more people are uh, people with disabilities, elderly, and um, young families with children with special needs and, and those types of experiences. So what have they done, right? So this is why we people learned from Syringa is that the minute uh, one of, uh, the minute these residents were faced with this uh, park purchase, um, one of the residents from Storinga who moved to one of these new communities wrote me and said, LT, <laughs> we just got bought up and we're really worried that this means a rent increase because we've talked about this with you before. It's like, yes. And sure enough, so that was in November a year ago, January 2023, they are issued this very long lease and told that they are going to need to pay these increased rents. Same person gets in touch with me, LT, what are we going to do about this? And so I met with them and I met with city council members, with uh, county commissioners, and we got right on it and we contacted a coordinator for a cooperative development center. In fact, the specific name for this one is the Northwest Cooperative Development Center stationed in Olympia, Washington, but they have a coordinator in Spokane, Washington. And this is part of the larger group, the national group that's called ROC USA, which stands for Resident Owned Cooperatives. 
USA. So anyone who's faced with an investor doing this, but late to have your resident owned cooperative, but it's not too late for you to form a cooperative, get in touch with one of these coordinators or whatever resident owned cooperative group is um, in your state. And if you form a cooperative, at minimum, most manufactured housing acts in each state um, will have some language that says if you have a homeowners association or cooperative, if an owner decides to sell, they need to let you know. And usually that window of time is like 30 days, so it's not long. But if you already have your cooperative formed, you're in a position where this cooperative development center is able to move quickly to help you and get the money that would be necessary to buy the land under your home. So that's what we've done. They have a cooperative. They, they, we went around door to door and got over 51% of residents to agree to being represented as a cooperative in all of these communities that were bought. And we have a legal aid clinic that is representing all of these communities and uh, doing the the investment firm to talk about how to fix those leases and to push back on this. So those are some steps. They're the real concrete practical steps. And of course, if you have any issues with water quality or sewage leakage because you are stuck in one of these county um, uh, types of parks, call your local Department of Environmental Quality or Department of Ecological Quality, whatever its name is in each state, call them and get those complaints recorded because that is, they usually do a better job when residents call than someone like me, which I've done in the past. Like I'm hearing complaints, but it should be the residents that do that. Well, excellent. Thank you for this uh, this advice. It's been a really good talk today and and, and I've enjoyed, ha enjoyed having you on the show. And I'm glad that this book is turning into a guidebook and being used for, for social change. It's uh, better than the alternative is it's sitting on a, on a shelf somewhere and, and no one reading it. I like, like my dissertation. <laughs> yeah, well, that's my dissertation too. I left a dollar in mine and I need to go back to the library. It's been a few years and see if the dollar's still there. <laughs> yes. And you know, the joys of the of the dissertation and, and beyond is all of the gems that come out of it in terms of smaller articles and and you know, some even books. So um you know, thank you for, for again for being on the show and and uh, this has been another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day. Thank you, Michael.